Hey everyone, before we get started, I just want to make sure you're aware of something cool that Vagrant's doing. Vagrant has 26 years on the street anniversary shows coming up. On May 28th at the Five Point Amphitheater in Irvine, California, they're going to have Dashboard Confessional, Alkaline Trio, Thrice, The Get Up Kids, Hot Rod Circuit, and The Anniversary. And on June 11th at the Palladium Outdoors in Worcester, Massachusetts, they're going to have Dashboard Confessional, Thrice, The Get Up Kids, Hot Rod Circuit, The Anniversary, and Monine. For tickets and more info, go to vagrant.com. Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of The Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. This episode, we talk with face-to-face and no motive. As you heard in the first episode of this podcast, it's a common misconception that face-to-face's Trevor Keith actually owned the record label, or if he didn't own it, that the band was always on the label from the beginning. Truth is, though, Vagrant released some live records and vinyl from face-to-face, but they didn't actually sign until 2002. I spoke to Trevor about it. And as always, the other voice you'll hear on this conversation is super producer of this podcast, Jesse Cannon. Trevor, I was going to ask, I was doing a little digging today. There's not a lot of information about Vagrant before the, what's the first record they put out was that Boxer record. And, but I remember that I had that West by North South comp that you guys were on because you did a, you did a Descendants cover, didn't you? We did. So that actually was our very first uh, interaction with Vagrant Records. At the time, I, I hadn't even met Rich at that point. He was running Vagrant as a real boutique kind of label out of his apartment in Santa Monica. It was really just an idea for him at that time. He knew some people in bands and he was putting together this comp record to kind of be, as far as I know, that's the first Vagrant release is that West by North South comp. So we were, as a band, you know, we'd gone from the garage to touring and it was all brand new for us. And things were starting to happen really quickly. We were really green and had no idea about how any of this stuff worked. We had hired a manager and um, he was a little bit more knowledgeable than us, but very inexperienced as well. And I, I just remember we were on tour for uh i think right around the time that our second album was about ready to come out and our manager at the time was on tour with us which shows you how inexperienced and backwards that was (laughs) that's always a good call yeah right when your album's about to come out to have your manager just sleeping on your converted airport van all day long and not really doing any work at all yeah (laughs) aka not working so yeah exactly so um i remember we were on tour and uh Rich had contacted our manager somehow and and made the request and we were super busy and we didn't even really know what Vagrant was and our manager didn't either. And it was kind of like one of those things where it was like, well, we don't have any new material, but I guess we could just, you know, we're going to be playing the show and we can ask the uh, engineer to make a board tape of a song and we'll just send that to you because we really didn't have anything. And like I said, we were young and overwhelmed and on tour and, and it was a crazy time. So we were playing CBGB's opening for no effects. It was the first time we played CBGB's. And Ken Jameson, who was their touring sound engineer, was also doing our sound. And I think I think our manager at the time, uh, Desi Benjamin, just asked him if he would roll a board tape. And um, we had a cover of The Descendants' Bikeage in our set. And um, we just made a copy of that and sent it to Rich. 
I don't think I've ever heard it, to be quite honest with you. It probably sounds really terrible. <laughs> to this day, I've never heard it. I don't even have a copy of West by North South. I'm kind of sad to say. But this was all pre, pre me even knowing who Rich Egan was or how our relationship would, you know, become super close in the future. So this was all just the very early kernels of all that. Well, I remember getting that because I didn't, I, I just had your guys' seven inch from that comp because I wasn't really that interested in anybody else because I was a, a fan of you guys. And then I was just like, but that, it was kind of like, I think I saw it advertised in like Maximum Rock and Roll or something like that. And just like, oh, cool. I'll, I'll mail order this. That was like kind of my first, uh, that's kind of cool that it was a board tape. That's, that's funny. I mean, at least it was from CB's, which has really good <laughs> recordings, you know, equipment. Maybe the only good thing they had. <laughs> Oh, come on. That place was fun. It was super fun, but it was a dive. It was disgusting, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so then when did you guys start working with Rich in a managerial capacity? So after we after we finished that tour, we got some advice from some other people in bands that were like, yo, dude, your manager probably shouldn't be out on the road with you. You might want to reconsider your whole manager thing. And um, so we parted ways with him and then we started looking for managers and, and Big Choice had come out and we were starting to get a little bit of attention. So it was a little bit easier for us to take those meetings because, you know, only a couple of years prior, no one had any interest in talking with our band. But now we had a release on Fat. We were, you know, had a new record and um, we were touring and all that good stuff. We shopped around in the L.A. music scene a little bit and uh, met, I think we met with like three or four different management companies. And, you know, they all scared us a little bit because it all seemed way too official. And these were older people that, you know, at least seemed to have power. And we were just nervous about getting gobbled up, um, except for one company. And the one company called Borman Moyer, there was a person who was our age also at the meeting and uh, looked like a skater dude, you know, like some kind of skate rat. And that was Rich Egan. I remember him wearing his Ben Davis hat and a hoodie, you know, and um, so that stood out for us. And and once we had had our kind of obligatory conversation with the manager, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers. Then Rich came over and said, hey, I just want you guys to know I am a big fan of your of your stuff. I know the band. I know punk rock. And if you guys came over here, I would actually be your point guy. So you wouldn't have to feel so alienated by these like music business types. And, um, and that went a long way for us. So we decided to go with Borman Moyer mainly because Rich was there. And, uh, and, and so, you know, we got along really great with Rich and, and it was a good experience with the manager. And then Rich made the decision at some point, once he had picked up a couple of other clients, to go off on his own and we went with him as far as i know i, I think it was only us and a band called pond that went with rich oh i remember um, Pond from uh yeah Good, right yeah right yeah they were super cool actually yeah they were i forgot we, uh, that he managed them that's funny yeah that was one of his early early management clients like us so really from that point on it was a lot about managing the band and him trying to clean up messes and further <laughs> our career and and help us you know make decisions going forward and with the landscape that we had we had created um but we were obviously in record deals and so even though Rich, you know, was starting Vagrant and aspiring to get that off the ground, 
he we were we didn't have like open access to just go make records i'm not sure at what point rich brought john cohen on but i i don't believe they were always partners in vagrant maybe they were but i feel like maybe i just wasn't aware of john until after um rich was managing us for a little while and then um the idea came about from rich that we should do a live album and that live album was the first full-length vagrant release to my knowledge was face-to-face live and that's uh the, uh econo live is that what that's called no no it's uh econo live came later this was this was uh face-to-face live uh we didn't say that it was from the roxy uh, but it was and because uh, it costs a lot more money to have that licensing so it's just called face-to-face live and uh so john was involved at this point now and he was i guess in the early days he was kind of the money guy and uh or, or whether he was or wasn't i remember he was very concerned about the money and uh it, it, it was not much changed <laughs> through the years but rich was a little more relaxed about the whole thing and he just wanted us to go and play a good show actually let me back up a little bit here's how the idea came out for this record so we were locked into these record deals but rich wanted us to do a record for vagrant now i remember there was a, a, a mobile recording company called Studio One or something like that. I can't quite remember. But this was a service, and they used to go to music venues or recording studios, and they would record bands uh, with their mobile truck. Uh, I know this sounds like dinosaur archaic days with the technology we have now, but you got to remember, this is 1995. So this was a pretty cool service back then. And they had just shown up at one of our shows while we were on tour and they recorded us and then got in touch and said, hey, we have this great live recording of you guys if you'd like to use it for anything. And we were like, oh yeah, that's awesome. We heard it, it sounded great. And uh, so we decided we were going to release a live record based on these uh, recordings. And somewhere while that van or mobile truck was out traveling and recording bands with our masters it burned all of the masters and the truck to the ground so that idea that we had of doing a live record literally went up in smoke and i think then that's when rich sees the opportunity and said well you were going to do a live record anyway what if we did it on vagrant this would give us our first release and a full-length release and, and and it would also kind of operate outside of the world of doing um of our record contract uh, because these were all, you know, previously recorded songs. So it was just a re-record. So that's how the idea for the live album came about. We booked three, I don't know if we did three separate nights, but I know we did three sets at the Roxy. I think we did two in one day and one in the other. I can't quite remember, but we recorded three full sets and then we pulled, you know, the best moments of each of those sets and put a live record together. Um, But one of those, one of the standout moments for me is being at the Roxy and getting ready to do the shows and being backstage. And John Cohen was so nervous. And he would—he is someone that was kind of new to us at this point. We hadn't really spent much time around John. We'd spent plenty of time around Rich because he was managing us for several months, maybe even a year at this point. And uh, but John was kind of funny and and uh, he he's not really a, a partier. I mean, you know that, Matt, from being around him. And, but he was drinking heavily this night because he was, <laughs> he was so nervous that anything would go wrong. Um, I don't know. Maybe that was a put on. Even if he wasn't drinking heavily, he just he was just walking around super nervous and acting like, oh, God, I, I got to have something to calm my nerves. 
And uh, we had a good laugh about that. And it, it, you know, went off without a hitch. And the record came out great. And um, it, I, it was their, you know, kind of flagship recording. And then I think from there, Rich and John sort of knew they had this this one release uh, from a band that was kind of up and coming at the moment. And we had, I would, we probably had some respect, you know, from some of the newer bands or whatnot that were coming up at the time. So they, they would then, you know, have a little bit of an ace in the hole when they went to go approach other up and comers and say, well, Hey, we put out this record. Would you want to come to our label? You know, so it was, it was cool to be involved with Vagrant in that manner. Well, that's something that certainly came to like, that was our first, cause we, we had always intended to just, you know, sign to a major, like we were going to, we put out a record on Doghouse and then we we're just like, okay, this is a stepping stone. Kind of like the way we looked at you guys, you know, your first records on Dr. Strange and then, you know, and you go, you know, and then this, and it's just onward and upward from there is the pr- pr- trajectory you have in your head. And then when that didn't pan out, we had already started working with Rich and it was like, okay, well, he can either be our manager or our label. Cause you know, everybody knows you can't have your manager be your label at the same time. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> that's just, that's just common knowledge. And, uh, when the, when all of the major label negotiations kind of didn't pan out the, I think it was your guys's involvement with vagrant that ultimately, I mean, we already trusted rich, but it was kind of like, you know, are we really going to try and put out it's like well they did put out a bunch of face-to-face like lps and you know that the live record and like that kind of stuff and you know i i knew your relationship with because i don't know if we had met at that point i don't know if we met until we came out to california to to record something at home about and we were staying at at kevin kusatsu's house yeah i think that was it that was the first time Mm -hmm. because you i if i remember correctly you lent us some gear to make that record did we i think you did (laughs) i think you let like lent me an amp and a guitar and i don't remember what it was but there's i have this i just remember seeing you and nick talik and that was just kind of like oh this is cool (laughs) like these are just like because like you know i was we were big face-to-face fans it was just kind of like oh this is just this regular guy you know (laughs) it's just sort of like kind of crazy that's rad rad. Uh, yeah that's i don't have any recollection of lending you gear but that makes me sound cool so i appreciate that thanks (laughs) i may have even like exaggerated that part of the story like you helped us like move gear or something like that i don't know i was just like yeah trevor was so cool to us you know it was like so here's a question then when so you were managed by rich and you were on what label were you on at the time like say like we were on this label called Victory Music, um, which was an imprint of JVC, Japanese Victor Corporation, and and it was actually the parent company was JVC in Japan. They didn't have much of a presence in the United States, but it's it's super convoluted. This is kind of a funny story, and this has happened before Rich got involved. Our previous manager negotiated this deal for us on a label called Victory Music. And it was this guy, Phil Carson, who had road managed Led Zeppelin, British guy, back in the old days. He convinced Japanese Victor Corporation to give him an imprint label. They had distribution through uh, Polygram, which specifically ended up becoming A&M Records at the time. So it was kind of one of those mid-level labels. Like they had a budget and a small staff, but then all their distribution went through major label distribution. So 
sort of that weird purgatory that, you know, you really shouldn't want to find yourself as a band. It was a weird thing at the time, the kind of imprint thing. It's a very like late 90s sort of thing where like major labels like kind of wanted to put out Indian punk rock and hardcore bands, but didn't really know if it would work. And so you'd kind of be on this on one label, but have a different name, you know? Yeah. And I, I think in theory, the thought behind that was good because they thought, look, we sell records to this audience. Um, why don't we just give an imprint to an indie label? They know that world better and those people will know how to market those albums. So in theory, that's a great idea. Um, Victory Music wasn't that label, unfortunately. It was just the label that, you know, was financially solid for us and gave us a basis to go to be able to tour and not have to worry about working, you know, for brief periods of time. But unfortunately, they didn't have that like really super connected marketing staff that understood punk rock. I mean, they put out the Tin Machine records, which was that David Bowie side project thing, right? In the 90s. And uh, so that was kind of their big claim to fame. I think we were just so desperate to grab at something that seemed more official and a little more pro that that made sense to us at the time. But it ultimately resulted in being a pretty bad decision. We only spent one album there. But that was the mess that Rich had to sort out is us getting involved in that label. And we had signed there, but I don't think we had released our second album yet. We had just signed the deal. Then we fired our manager and brought Rich on. And then he had to kind of deal with the release of Big Choice. And we started to actually get radio. I mean, for everything that label didn't do right, that was the label that got us radio for Disconnected and got us played nationally. And we did radio shows and played that whole game, which I think has still, you know, been something that is, is uh, one of those moments for our career that set us apart and has, has kept uh, one of the things that's allowed us to keep going for so long, because even if you, aren't aware that we're still a band uh, and, and touring and making records, people do remember that Disconnected was and is on the radio in, in some cases. Um, and, uh, and and so that kind of still keeps, I don't know, it provided some momentum for the band, you know, that that I think was, was well, a really good thing. And now it's like a, a foundation for you to continue to, you know, work. Yeah, for sure. So Rich had to clean that up. And then what we, what the best idea was for the band after that is since we were already being distributed by A&M, we just wanted to go right to A&M records. Um, and, and Rich was instrumental in convincing A&M to just take us away from victory. And, and then we, our next, our third album was a proper A&M release. And, and I think the live record came out either right before or right after that third album. And then Vagrant did the vinyl for for the self was a self-titled record your third record yeah and for well no they didn't do it for big choice they did it for the self-titled record yeah speak rich convinced them like hey you should let my indie label make the vinyl because we know what we're doing and we'll be able to market to that sector and that was during the time when vinyl was dead and and nobody like no major label wanted it wanted to touch it <laughs> you know exactly Exactly. Yeah. Now you can just be anyone and release an album on vinyl and there's a market for it because people just love vinyl. Well, it's an interesting time because it was it was kind of only like hip hop and punk rock and hardcore that like seemed to keep the vinyl industry alive there for a little while. You know, like it's just like, you know, we uh, you know, we we always had all of our records came out on vinyl in some capacity. And but yeah, kind of interesting. So. 
I wanted I wanted to mention too, just going back to something you said earlier. Before I, I ever met you, and before Rich ever signed you guys or brought you guys on at Vagrant, I was aware of your band and I had your EP and I I listened to it all the time. I thought you guys were super cool. And so when Rich came to me and said, "Hey, we're we're talking to this band Ghetto Kids," I was like, "Oh yeah, dude, you have to do that. They're great." Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate. So that. there was a, and I think that's what was cool about Vagrant, like. You know, before Rich and John signed Alkaline Trio, we had toured with them. And so I loved a lot of the bands that Rich and John were bringing into Vagrant at the beginning, too. You know, it was it was all connected. In a way. So did you feel any like when when Rich is like, I'm assuming he talked to you at some point about like, you know, we're looking to kind of like expand the label because I know they were looking at a couple of different bands to try and like move things to the next level, I guess would be the way to put it. And they ultimately work, started working with us. But did you feel any like resentment in that sense of just kind of like, well, what does that mean for us and Heart 8? That's the management company. Did you feel any uh, like hesitation about that? Not until Dashboard Confessional. And I love Chris Caraba dearly. <laughs> Chris is awesome. But I think it, it wasn't until Dashboard started really blowing up with Vagrant that that became pretty all enveloping over there at the company. You know what I mean? And um, then it, then I think that might've, that might've been the point where what you said earlier, where having your manager and your record label be the same people, that might've been the point where the biggest strain was put. And I mean, it, it was bound to, right? Because once you have someone that's selling that many records and achieving that level of success, you can only dedicate so much time to all of the other projects. So that's probably the cautionary tale. And it's not Chris specifically or that project or anything. That was just the one thing that started consuming so much time and resources at the label slash management company that I, I think that was a moment where we were kind of going, okay, man, now there's not really enough time being dedicated to us. And, uh, yeah, it's that, it's that classic story and in, in all sorts of entertainment when you, when you're, when you're people, when you're, you know, management or agents or, or whatever, all of a sudden take on another client that becomes a juggernaut, you know, they're, they're no, there's somebody's going to have to get backburnered. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, right, cause I mean, we right. felt, we felt and, that way too at that time. And again, it's nothing against Chris at all. It's just kind of no, like, God, no. it was an impossible thing to like, try and be like, Oh, things can stay the way that they were, but then also handle the day to day for this kind of phenomenon that was happening with dashboard at the, on their first and second record or, or whatever. Whoa. Right. Well, going back to the early days though, I didn't mean to skip too far ahead. So I'm not even sure what the distribution was for the face-to-face -face live album. I it was only remember, after. Was it through, yeah. was it through red or Caroline? Maybe through Caroline. I think Caroline was it because by the time Rich had started signing bands like you guys and Alkaline Trio and, and I don't know, all the first crop of Anniversary and, and a bunch of those first bands. Saves the Day was another early band on there <laughs> that just popped into my head. That was when that was around the time that, that Vagrant then went and did one of those deals we were just talking about, the imprint with the larger major label, except that was the more classic version of it where you had a record company and a staff that understood 
the music, the culture, and the audience for what they were marketing. So that was the good version of it, not where we were at Victory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyhow, so well, it's more it's more like a it's more like a major label comes to an already established indie, and is like yes, it's almost yes. like a like an investor. You know, like we don't we don't necessarily want to run your your label. We just want to put money into it so you can have more success with it. And what was that? Was that the one with the, uh, which, what was that label that did that? I don't even, was that Interscope? That was the Interscope deal. Okay. Yeah. That was the, that was the big one that really allowed Vagrant to kind of, you know, make a light, with light that, year jump. What was the, I don't even, I was kind of in my own head at the time and Rich would kind of explain what was going on to me, but there was some, there was a controversy because they had signed a deal with some other company and then they got out of it to go to Interscope. And oh, they- you're right. You're right. And I don't, you know, you'll have to ask Rich because, and I'm sure you will at some point. Um, he probably also, I was going to say, and, and this could be a segue into Rich's segment potentially. Um, the early stuff we're talking about, like when they put out the live record and they had distribution to Caroline or whatever, I know there's a good story there that has to do with funding and them working with their CD company, uh, the plant that made the CDs and them trying to figure out like how to get the money from this guy to pay that guy. And it's all kind of, it's a little bit sketchy. (laughs) I think that's why John was as scared as he was at the time. Because there was a lot of, uh, at, at the time to them, I guess, being young and new at business, there was a lot of money changing hands and um, they had to rob Peter to pay Paul and shuffle things around on some of those early releases. So definitely ask Rich about that. Do you think they, though, they worked well together just because it's like John is very like risk averse and very like uh, worried about money and Rich is kind of like more blue sky, like, yeah, we can do this and we could do this and we could do this. And we could do this. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's why Rich, he needed a John, you know, in order for the company to, to be able to do its thing, you know, for, for to be, I think to become as successful as it ultimately became he, Rich definitely needed people around him to, um, to keep, to keep him grounded in some sense, because he is an incredible idea man. You know, he's a great visionary and he has a great sense of like what bands are going to be successful and, and you know, what, what's going to click with audiences. But, you know, in order to concentrate all your time on that, you don't, I don't know. Most people I know like that don't also have like a, a strict sense of like money management. <laughs> Yeah. So risk was, I mean, Rich was willing to take risks that John wouldn't and see, and that's why I don't think John could have run a successful record label on his own. He never, because he never would have signed a band that he wasn't sure was going to sell records. And therefore he would probably only sign crappy bands because bands have to be developed and they have to be exposed to the world and marketed. So if you don't hear that spark in the band and you're only concerned with how many records or downloads or streams they're going to have, then um, you're probably not going to be very good at it. Yeah. You end up like kind of chasing your own tail. You're always like, or like chasing the fads, you know, of like what's going to be the next big thing or whatever, as opposed to just being like, this is awesome. 
we should put this out. And it's and whenever you're chasing fads, you're always too late, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's <laughs> by the time you found out about it, it's probably not cool anymore. Right. So. By the time Cohen but found no. out, by the time Cohen found out about it, it definitely wasn't cool anymore. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> without a doubt. You know, Rich became my very close friend and we're lifelong friends to this day. We've known each other for nearly 30 years and we've stayed close throughout the years. John, I really only interacted with John in the framework of working at the record label, but, um, but he's great. Uh, He always made me laugh. You know, they're, they're, they're both like, you know, people with a great sense of humor and a lot of passion and, uh, you know, it was good times. It was it was fun being around the whole vagrant kind of universe. In those early days, no, I, we weren't really jealous at all. It felt more like um, felt more like being part of a cool club or something because there were these great bands coming in and being part of the vagrant label and really establishing what the what the identity would be of that brand. You know, through the the bands that Rich and John, Rich mostly, uh, selected because he went out and aggressively pursued the acts that he thought would create a sound and a brand for the label. Well, and I think uh, Kevin Kusatsu too. You know, I think his influence is pretty pretty huge on on what was going on there. Yeah, without Toshi, you don't really get. Does anybody uh, he, call him? He, does anybody call him Toshi anymore? <laughs> I do. I don't care. <laughs> He'll always be Toshi to me. I saw him. Oh, man, I haven't seen him for now. Jesus, probably been seven years, maybe. But um, when I was still living in Nashville, he had come into town and, and we all hung out at Rich's place. And it was it was really good to see Kevin because I haven't seen him for years and years. He, he came and we to were lucky sh- enough to. We had him on a tour one time and it was such a blast, you know? Yeah, same. But that that kid was destined for greater things. Yes, he wasn't going to be a roadie on a tour, you know? You know how you can tell who's a really good merch guy? Or, you know, you know like if you get a merch guy that's too good at it, it's just like you're not sticking around for too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, your internship's over. Go do something good now. Yeah, no, go make some money. <laughs> uh, but so, okay, so then you're you're on you're on the major label. Vagrant's putting out your vinyl, but then you ended up signing the Vagrant because you have you're right. You put out a record in 2002. Is that what I'm? We looking did. At? So after yeah, after um, we have such a sordid record label history. It's it's you've been on a lot exhausting. of labels. I'm looking at your at your wiki now. <laughs> You've really been on a lot of record labels. So I believe after we released after we released our self-titled record and then the live album, I think came either before or after. Then we we didn't we didn't go to Vagrant yet because it, there was a better deal for us at this company called Beyond Music, and we did that first. I, I don't actually, you know. I don't really remember why we didn't go to Vagrant proper at the time, but we we went to Beyond and we released two albums there. We did our Ignorance is Bliss record and our reactionary album. It was a big shakeup for us, the Ignorance is Bliss record. I, I, I had gone to Rich and told him that we were breaking up face to face. And he said, don't break up the band, just go on a hiatus. Uh, but we were burned at the time and we wanted to split. We were frustrated that, you know, we'd done a bunch of work in pop punk or whatever. And now this emo thing was happening. It was kind of starting to gobble everything up. And we're kind of like, you know what? 
it wasn't so much we were bummed on face to face. We just feel like we felt like we wanted to switch our direction creatively. And um, Rich convinced us to not break the band up to pause. And I said, well, this record that we're writing isn't a face to face album. So we should like establish a different project and put it out under that name. Like, like Blake did with jets to Brazil out of jawbreaker, you know? And, um, but ultimately we ended up just keeping it as a face to face record. And we, we did that album with beyond music and then um another one like i said and then that label kind of folded or it, it changed and it, it it uh you know it, it it's gone now it became like i can't even think of the name it currently is but the people that were involved in it did reshape the company and and ended up doing like a media company instead of a record label or whatever so after those two albums we were free agents again and then for whatever reason i guess that was the time to do a proper release through vagrant so that was our uh record how to ruin everything do you do people like uh what what like now because you're you're on Fat right now, right? What label do people most associate you with? Is it Fat? Probably, I guess. Maybe because it's sort of bookended our career. You know, our first album. You mentioned Doctor Strange, but I think we only sold maybe a couple thousand copies before Fat bought that from Doctor Strange. So yeah, most I people had, think of that first album as a Fat Records album. I, I did too, actually, and I was kind of. I think I had it on the Fat Records. LP, but I was looking online and it said it, it came out on Doctor Strange. And I was like, oh, I must have misremembered. It did originally. And then and then we met, we started touring with No Effects and we met their people and we're like, Mike, would you re-release this record? Because we were really frustrated with uh, Doctor Strange. I mean, was kind of like Rich was in the in the Santa Monica apartment when he put his first comp out. Like, he was totally unprepared to make lots of copies of albums. He didn't have the infrastructure or the financing or the know-how. So, um, but Fat Records was already established and had distribution and a little bit of backing. So anyway, they picked it up. And then, you know, we, we put out, let me try to get to how we got back to Fat just real briefly. When we did How to Ruin Everything on Vagrant, actually, that was... Pretty well. I think we had a little bit of radio going on Furious 5 at 9 on K-Rock, which is the local L.A. station. It was like a little spotlight they would give to new music. And um, we were kind of making a little bit of headway there. But then uh, the record promotion and the machine and everything behind it from, I don't know if it was the label side as much or maybe just the, the Interscope side. It just it's sort of petered out, you know. And, uh, and so after that album, we did, we did a bunch of touring on it. You know, we did a bunch of warp tours and everything. And then after that record, then we really did decide to, to just fold it up. And we broke the band up after that. Well, now we're calling it a hiatus though, since we're back together. But at the time it was a breakup. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've, got, and, we've uh, got one of those too. So that was, uh, you know, we were thoroughly just kind of disillusioned and, and burnt and tired. And, you know, we'd made, we'd made six albums at that point. And honestly, with no breaks and a lot of touring and a lot of label changes and a lot of drama. And um, even though we tried with Ignorance is Bliss to stretch our musicality in a little bit of a different direction, when it was released, it wasn't very well received. It would only be several years later that people started actually really liking and appreciating that record. But at the time, we didn't feel any of that, you know? So um, we just, uh, we needed a break. And we decided at the time we needed a clean break and we broke the band up. But um, 
after four, maybe nearly five years of not having face-to-face, we realized that it was something super special that we would never find again with any other project. And I don't know if that was your experience with Get It Kids and the hiatus. Uh, there's some kind, there's some kind of Voltron, you know, that just like we, when we, we're all good on our own, but when we come together, it makes, you know, some sort of super, super robot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great way of putting it. I think you're right about that. Like we, we did do things individually, but when we did reunite, initially it was just going to be like a reunion show and, and it was amazing. You know, we had such a great time doing it. It was so fun. And it was kind of like, damn, dude, the sum is really greater than the parts here. Like we should do some version of this going forward. And then, you know, now here I am, however many years later, and we've released three more albums and done a buttload more touring. (laughs) It just kind of, you know, it just sucked us back in. Yeah. Just when you think you get out, they suck you right back in. But so, (laughs) you know, but the truth is there's just nothing else like it. And it's 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 so fun and it's such a great connection that you can make with, you know, absolute strangers. And and you have this immediate connection from the stage through music. And it's just uh, it's hard to deny something like that. And we kind of looked around and went, you know, we're all still here. We're healthy. There's no good reason that we shouldn't still be doing this. So, yeah, I mean, you you don't have to do it like you did when you were in your 20s or anything you know it's just sort of like you can do it you know as an adult yeah and when we we came back it wasn't competitive anymore i felt like i was really doing it just for the love of doing it and not because i was driven to achieve some you know arbitrary level of success i had set for myself that didn't really ever exist anyway it's just kind of cool because that's why you got into playing in a band in the first place you know it's just because you you have to do it you love to do it and you want to want to keep doing it I wanted to ask you about, because you did, didn't you do some side project things? Was that in the hiatus? Yeah, during the hiatus, uh, Rich helped me to um, form or to have a, a better, a better formed version of my um, imprint label that I have called Antagonist. We did a distro deal with Image Entertainment and I released some records through that distro deal and some, some video projects as well. I kind of went off on a weird tangent. I did a solo album, which wasn't so weird, that I released through my antagonist label. And then I got involved with this video director, Darren Doan. Did he ever do any videos for you guys? No, but I know who he is. He, he, did, a, he, was, he did a ton of videos for like people we know. Right. So he brought me, we both lived, he lived in Thousand Oaks and I lived in Westlake Village. So we were neighbors and um, we had reconnected because he shot, uh, actually, he shot the music video for Blind that was from the live record that Vagrant released. But by this time we'd reconnected and he was doing a bunch of video projects and he was really excited about this uh, battle rap DVD that he had made. And I started getting kind of excited about this underground world of hip hop and rap, which is pretty foreign to me and what I do musically. But um, I was, like I said, I was real burnt on punk rock and I was looking to do something entirely different. And I ended up releasing the KRS-One record. Yeah, I'm, see, I'm seeing that deal. online now. And I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? I was like, they can't yeah. be the same antagonist record. And, well, and through that deal as well, um, there were the, there was this producer that had some other artists and 
And uh, I ended up doing a, a Foot Soldiers record that was his production. And then Chad Blinman, who had been a longtime producer, engineer, mixer of ours and Face to Face and our good buddy over the years, of course, he... Uh, he and I started something that we were calling the Legion of Doom. Essentially, that was just a remix project. It was a, a producer's remix project. And we took, uh, at the time, mashups were kind of this new thing that people were doing. It sounds sort of funny now because I don't really think anyone cares anymore about it. But it was kind of that fad that we were talking about chasing at the time. And um, so we had done a bunch of uh i wanted to do punk rock emo and hardcore bands and mash them together with beats unlike anyone had ever really heard before and it was cool having access to the vagrant catalog we and and reaching out to guys like you and and so we used some get up kids songs and a couple mashups some alkaline trio stuff dashboard and uh all kinds of different things i can't even remember all of them we did but we called the record Incorporated, and it was only really ever released kind of online uh, because we couldn't get rights from any of the labels. Yeah, I don't remember getting a paycheck for that. <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't really commercially released. It was more of just like a leak. You know, we just wanted people to hear. We just wanted people to hear the remixes. And it was cool because people, the fans, took it upon themselves to make their own music videos for the songs. So they were then going and grabbing these videos that existed and mashing them together to make other songs. So it, it really just became this like internet bootleg phenomenon kind of thing. That was fun. And then through that process, we ended up doing remixes of, of songs for some film you know, soundtracks and, and just a bunch of a different random remixer kind of stuff. And uh, one of the projects we did was a project with one of the guys from that rap world, the Foot Soldiers, where we did a bunch of uh, music and beats and stuff, and then we brought him in to rap over the top of it. And that's called Legion of Doom versus Triune. But uh, yeah, I, I digress, man. That, I look at that as a weird kind of veer off of my musical career path because I was involved in it creatively from the electronic remix producer side. And that's still something I am interested in to some degree. But the hip hop part, I think, was uh, maybe just a, a weird, you know, I don't know. It was it was a weird affair I had with my music career. I think it's, I think it's cool. I think it's cool to diversify. I have a similar I mean, I didn't get I. I ended up getting into like more like singer songwriter kind of like Americana stuff. And that's where I kind of like departed from punk rock when I got burnt out after being in a, you know, in a touring band for, for so, so long. And that's logical. I think that makes a heck of a lot more sense. And that's actually something I've gotten a lot more interested in, in, in recent years, because there's a, there's a closer connection, I think, between punk rock or alternative or whatever and then americana music well i think now there's a lot of like i mean there's you know emo rappers you know it's just sort of like it's a you know it's a whole right. thing now yeah yeah, yeah Which that, were, before right. that was just sort of like and you mix any kind of rock and roll with hip-hop and it was just sort of like what the hell is this and but now it's just like all bets are off one thing i think that was fun about the the process of working with a more electronic music based project is it really piqued my interest in music production and and synthesizers and and creating cool you know weird soundscapes and and stuff like that and it, it's influenced a new project that I've been doing with my son where 
uh, we have a duo together that we're calling Icarus Daedalus, and we just released an ambient electronic album, and that that right now is like a passion project for me. So I'm I'm we're loving that, and I plan on doing a lot more of that in the future. It's real small, you know. It's not meant to be a a mainstream, heavily pushed focus project, but it's great. It's it's really not too hard to find like a community online for that, and um, it's a lot of people almost doing it as like a folk art project, you know, where like anyone can dabble, and a lot of it is just sort of fun, you know. It's it's there's there's no pressure from a like a business standpoint. That's really cool. That's really really cool. You know, uh, you brought up Blinman. You worked with him, didn't you guys? He produced our biggest record <laughs> he recorded and produced something at home about in silver lake i think the last Why don't i remember that i totally forgot that he did that album yeah well no one no one realizes it they all think ed rose did it but he didn't and the was that at mad hatter yeah in silver lake yes it was a mad hatter oh, okay back before that's right around the same time we were doing we see we were working there with chad as well yes. there was a brief period of time and not long after we made those records together your band and ours that they sold mad hatter i think it went to um it went to what is that strange religion they practice in hollywood scientology it did it went to, it went to the scientologists well yeah because it was yeah. it was chick korea's studio and he was a scientologist so that would make sense that's right that's right it had a hundred thousand dollar steinway grand piano in it they must have gotten a deal because you know we were there for like a month like it was you know or longer than that they must have gotten a deal but um so Blinman, I think the last time I saw Blinman was the day we wrapped that record. I have not seen him since 1999, which <laughs> is kind of wild. No kidding. Oh, my gosh. For oh, someone, wow. Well, for someone he, who has such a big part of, of my career, uh, it's strange yeah, that I— That is kind of crazy. He, he's, um, he now lives in Boston, and he's at the Berkeley College of Music in Boston. That's really cool. Yeah, he's been there now for— Probably more than a, uh, maybe about 10 years now, I think. Something like that. Yeah, it's a great, great move for him. He's been crushing it over there. I forgot that he recorded that album. That's so cool. Yeah, everybody and, does. <laughs> uh, we had done, we had done, um, uh, we mixed our, our Ignorance is Bliss record, which I talked about earlier. And then we recorded all of the reactionary, the next album that followed at that place. So that was a cool place to work. I like that place. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, a really nice studio. It was before Silver Lake was like, super hip and so there wasn't very much there wasn't very much good food yeah i was still pretty seedy at the time if i remember <laughs> so as we as we said before you've been on a lot of record labels <laughs> as well as as well as owning your own imprint and owning your own label and all that kind of stuff so what is it about like what would you say is different about vagrant either at the time before you were on the late because you were always kind of on the label you were always kind of a part of the family you know what I mean? Like, I think everybody, because you put out, you know, you worked with Rich and you, they put out your, your vinyl and the uh, live stuff and, and all that. So, you know, what was, what was different about Vagrant than being on Fat or being on a major label for you guys? Uh, well, the biggest difference is that our manager also owned the label. And I think that created uh, a unique set of benefits and a unique set of problems. And we didn't have that experience anywhere else. I think Rich was aware of it. And, and I think he really tried his best to keep from mixing the two. I think because we first, our relationship first started with Rich as our manager, he always 
was careful about playing the role of manager with us and and making everything feel like he was looking out for the best interests of the band as the manager. So that gets tricky when a label is offering you a deal because normally your manager would negotiate that deal and beat up the label for the best deal he can get the band. Um, but if you're wearing the same hat, you know, you have to tread lightly there. It's a conflict of interest. The manager should be, it's hard to take your your label hat off and just be the manager. It isn't, it isn't. I think maybe maybe the best way that situation can play out is if every band you're releasing on your label is also your client, but you don't put any records out for bands who aren't your management clients because then everything's sort of equal, right? But I... The rub was that, and, and I, I shouldn't gripe about this because it, we were getting preferential treatment, obviously, but because <laughs> same <laughs> the basis of, of Rich's, uh, when he stepped out as a manager on his own, we went with him and we didn't have to, you know, we could have stayed at Borman Moyer, but I think that loyalty was big for Rich and we wanted to because Rich was awesome and we trusted him and his instincts and insight. If you remember walking into Vagrant, there were these gigantic screened images of us in there. (laughs) And there weren't for every band, but the management company and Vagrant were in the same building. So that was cool, but it was also a little bit weird. And in some ways I felt like there was this tribute being paid to the band, but I didn't always feel like the band was getting all of the uh, attention and not even attention, just time. And and that was the one resource that I found to be the, the, the most precious at Vagrant slash Heartache Management is um, it just wasn't possible to dedicate enough time And maybe that was because Rich wanted to be so hands-on with all of his clients. He'd never really built out this big staff and, you know, had people handle the clients more individually. Well, he had Vern, but, you know, he wasn't his own. I managed the band better than Vern ever could. (laughs) (laughs) So, Vern was great for some stuff. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's hard for me to, I mean, Ryan now is a, he's a seasoned veteran in this industry, but I'll always see him as that skater kid with a ball cap pulled down really low that was starting in the mailroom. And and when I met him, I was already pretty well versed in what to do. I had experience, you know, as both the leader of my band, a tour manager, a merch guy, like I'd already done everything at that point when he was wet behind the ears and, you know, filling mail order, <laughs> filling yeah, mail it, orders. It's, it's, so, hard to, it's hard to take somebody seriously as a peer when you meet them when they're a kid, you know, when you're already I, I know, and I'm not taking anything away from Ryan because like I said, he's a seasoned veteran, man. He's put in his years and he knows the ins and outs of all of it. So I'm not taking anything away from him now, but at the time... He was no substitute for Rich. No, not by and a long Rich, Rich, Rich didn't let him be anyway. You know, Rich, you know, he would basically, you could hear him yell at him from just across his own office. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, like you're I'll in the same office. I, I don't look back on any of my experiences with Hardy or Vagrant as negative. They were, they were salad days, you know, but it, it was a better experience being on Vagrant during the release and promotion of the live album 
which was the early days when it was a small, manageable company with just a few people caring for it, you know, and we were distributing records through Caroline. That was a better experience for me being in a band than releasing our proper full-length album that went through the Interscope machine um, however, you know, six records or three or four records later, that was a little bit of a letdown. I just really didn't feel like the record got the push or the attention or the resources dedicated to it. And it might have been because of what else was, you know, on the release docket at the time and what other records were also being marketed at the time. But I didn't feel like we were getting that kind of preferential treatment at that point. Here was the interesting dynamic at Vagrant. I think I'd, I'd be interested to get your opinion on this. Rich always treated us like we were top dog. I never felt second to any band uh, when it came to Rich. But what I noticed is this staff at Vagrant, namely not really John, but everyone else that they hired, they started becoming resentful of the management clients, of the hard eight management clients. So I felt like, you know, when we would ask for things regarding our release or whatever, they kind of roll their eyes or kind of be like, uh, here we go again. Because I think Rich was going to the other side of the building, the, the vagrant side with John and whoever and going, hey, these are management clients. I want this, this, this and this done for them. And then, you know, shit rolls downhill. So by the time it landed on Wayne's desk or whatever, he'd be like, wait a minute, why am I doing all this extra crap for this band when this record isn't even selling as good as this other one? And I'm a label guy doing a job. We should be dumping gas on the record that's selling well. But you want me to spend a bunch more time on this other band because they're a management client. So there was a little bit of that culture. I don't know if you experienced it, but I definitely felt like I saw that. I never experienced it from the employees there. And I don't know if it's just because we were younger and they were, you know, maybe closer to our our generation, people who were working there. Or, But I, I do know that, so we had... Our imprint was called Heroes and Villains when we signed there, and we brought in we brought in the Anniversary and Hot Rod Circuit, and then any other of our side projects under that label, Kofax. And I know that those guys a lot of times felt like the management bands got preferential treatment because you know, I mean, if you just look at the numbers, when especially when you've got the kind of like trifecta of Hard Eight, Vagrant, and Ellis, then it's <clears throat> all those bands you know did pretty you know, did pretty well. Um, and so I could see, I mean, I, I would assume that the bands that were on the label before we got there probably resented us, you know, like, I don't know how the no motive guys felt about it. I just remember feeling like walking into that new office that had the giant, first of all, no one consulted me that there was going to be a fucking larger than life photograph of me when I walked into this building. And so that was, (laughs) That was, especially when it was from the tour where for some reason I decided to grow out mutton chops like Wolverine. So it's just like, yes. like I did that for one tour and there's like so many photographs of it. And uh, so, but going into that building, I was just like, what is this? Cause it's like, I just remember they used to be in that like upstairs building above like a back alley with like homeless people in it. And yeah, the Santa Monica office. Yeah. And it was just kind of like, the guys in Kofax slept in that office when they came to LA to make their record, you know, like it was that kind of a, it was way, it was way more like for lack of a better term, like way more punk rock than when we got to, to the, to the, 
Well, I don't remember. Was it on Washington? Was that what the new one? Yeah, the Washington building. Well, that was all a result of that of that distro deal of that of that imprint deal with Interscope. So by design, things needed to get bigger. They had they were expected to staff up and have a facility where they could do all that stuff. Yeah, it was interesting. I don't know. I didn't interact with a lot of the a lot of the other people other than Vern slash Ryan was Rich's assistant. Only people I would interact with were Vern and then eventually Rich, because as things got busier, he was harder and harder to get on the phone. And then I never talked to Cohen. I never talked to Wayne. I rarely, t- Wayne and I talked about baking more than we talked about the record label. You know, like it's just, it wasn't. Well, I was down there a lot because I only lived up the road and it took me about 45 minutes to get there from my house. And um, I'd, I'd spend quite a bit of time down there. You know, Rich loved to do this thing when he managed us where I'd call him up and I'd be like, yo, dude, I have this laundry list of stuff I need to go over with you. And I'd start running it down. He'd go, just get down here. Just get down here. He'd always say that. Just get down here. And I'd be like, I don't want to slap all the way. I lived up in Westlake Village and, you know, to go all the way down to, to L.A. was, like I said, about 45 minutes each way. And then. I would be like, all right, cool. I liked hanging out there. You know, they had the skate ramp and it was a cool place to hang out and all that, despite the shrines that made us feel a little awkward. But, um, <laughs> so it's a so, very, it's know, a very major label move. You know what I mean? Like, it's a very, like, I, I'd, I'd get there, I'd flop down on the couch in his office and he'd be on the phone for the entire fucking time I was there, you know? And maybe we would get to talk for like 15, 20 minutes and then he'd be like, I gotta go. And he, and he would just leave. And I'm like, well, what am I doing here? I don't really want to hang with it. But because I was down there a lot, you know, I'd talk to Dan, I'd talk to Wayne, hang out with Cohen a little bit, hang out with Vern, go see what Joby was doing with artwork. You know, like it was it, it was a cool environment and a fun place to hang out. But I could also start to see by talking with some of the employees, some of their frustrations. And that that did exist to some degree where they would kind of be bummed about the management clients. Not bummed, but they'd feel like, you know, this is a distraction. Why am I giving so much extra time to the management clients when we should be working on other things? So that's my only one kind of little gripe there. Like I said, I don't really... I look back on all of it really favorably, but no place is perfect. And uh, as we go through life, we're all just figuring this stuff out as we go, right? So I think Rich and John created a, a really cool cultural thing with Vagrant Records with a lot of awesome bands. And, you know, ultimately it just kind of ran its course. From my experience of it being in face-to-face, I was much more involved with Rich as a manager and a friend. The Vagrant part of it wasn't such a central issue like we're talking about because the manager and the label and all that were sort of intertwined. My focus was mostly about my own band. If I can be selfish, I think we're all like that to some degree. So it was like how I viewed it through my eyes and being in face to face. We only had those two releases with Vagrant. So I don't know if people would really ever consider us a Vagrant band, quote unquote. We didn't. The one record we made um, in our catalog with with Vagrant, which was How to Ruin Everything, the original album. I don't think people would view that as a standout album in our catalog for any particular reason. It's. It's a good record, but, you know, we're about ready to make our 10th record and people still want us to play songs from our first album. So that's just the nature of the, they, that's what they want here at a show. <laughs> and and I'm not complaining, but that's just the nature of how, 
how this kind of thing works. And I don't know if our one flagship Vagrant release is anything a face-to-face fan notices and goes, yeah, they're a Vagrant band. So we might be kind of an odd man out band in this whole uh, talking about Vagrant and their 25th anniversary. But we were definitely there for the foundation and the beginning of what Vagrant would be. And I, I think that's probably our best connection and contribution to the label. Well, and I think that you, I think that's very, very true and very well well put. I think it. You're a big part of your association with Vagrant, and your association with Rich is a really big part of why we ended up there, which is kind of the start of the the next chapter of of Vagrant. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the exactly, exactly. And so, it, in a in a lot of ways, you you're uh, the ones pouring the foundation. And then, okay, so if I if I continue that analogy, that you're the pour the foundation we're the uh, studs of the house <laughs> there you go yeah <laughs> that makes sense <laughs> oxnard california's no motive was one of the first bands to sign to vagrant i spoke to former drummer pat pedreza about this time so okay we're going to talk about your relationship and your experience with uh, the Vagrant Records. How did you start working with Vagrant, and at what point did you start working with Vagrant? Um, I so we started working with Vagrant. I think it was like '97 or '98. We we're just a punk band from from Oxnard, and I just heard about Vagrant through Face to Face, and it was kind of funny. I. I I heard about Figant because we we're fans of Face to Face, and I looked up like a, a Face to Face live CD I found at Salzer's Records over here, and it had the address of Vagrant, and I was like, oh, maybe they're on that label. So I just started mailing them demos, and and I started calling them, like just perf- like bugging them. You know what I mean? We're like, we're fans of Face to Face, and we like that style of music, and we're kind of like not too punk, but punk, whatever. You know, we just like sent them. I just kept bugging them. And they finally came out to Oxnard to see us play at like a laser tag place. And uh, yeah, we had like 300 kids there. So that was like huge. And they put us, they recorded two songs and put them on a sampler. And then that was, that was it. So like, like 98, like around 98. Yeah. That's how we. So I have a couple of questions. One just in, in relation to where exactly Oxnard is. Is it like North of LA or is it yeah, and Oxnard is like 50 miles north from LA and it's like 30 miles north of Malibu on the beach, but it's like not Malibu, you know what mm-hmm, I mean? It's mm-hmm. kind of but yeah, so it's about it's about an hour drive from LA. So you could get to Vegas where it was located before on Santa Monica or Pico. Yeah, I remember that and we just go down PCH and and right there. So it was like an hour away. So then who came who came out to see you guys in that original that first show? Dude, it was Rich, Kevin, Kusatsu, and John Cohen. Oh, so the big three, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you really like pushed to work with them, and they and like what was the the sam- what was the sampler that they put you guys on? Was it that what was that called? That first sampler they did? Yeah, I think it was Five Years on the Streets. Is that the, yeah. another year on the streets? Yeah, it was that one. So when did you go in to record Sadness Prevails and the Sadness Prevails? Um, I think we, it was like, wow, man, it came out February 99. So maybe like summer of 98, I think something like that. Who recorded it? Who produced it? Um, we recorded at this 
awesome studio. We heard about our, our guitarist, Max's dad used to uh, do sessions there. Um, Max's dad was a producer and he's like, he recorded us a couple demos over here at the studio. It's called audio international in Ojai. And they had like, they had like a Neve board and all this like crazy cool, like two inch tape machine. And it was awesome. So yeah, we recorded there and it was really cool because it was like, you know, like 30 minutes from our house up in the woods and um, Trevor from Face to Face produced it, and Chad Blinman. That's what I thought. It. That's what I thought actually, uh, because I think they also did some Face to Face stuff at that studio. Because I remember when we were out in LA, Rich talking about them going up to Ojai, and I was just kind of like, "What the fuck is Ojai?" <laughs> I was just like, you know, because I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about California. Yeah, and it was really crazy because I'm not saying we started it, but like we were one of the first bands to kind of discover that place and like a whole bunch of other bands face to face got in there after. And then other bands started going and hearing about it because it was just like this awesome studio, like no one really heard about. And then it started getting a little bit of a buzz with bands because they had all the crazy, really cool vintage stuff. So it was cool. So that record came out in February of 99, you said? I, I think so. Yeah. And uh, like, what did you guys, what was the reaction to that? Like, what was, did, did people like did, did signing to vagrant prove to be the thing that you wanted it to be after all that effort of reaching out to them and trying to get them to come see you play? It totally was like, um, I think like, dude, it was like, honestly, like, well, you know, we first, when you first started as a, when you first started as a band, you just have these dreams of going on tour with these certain bands and it seems so out of reach, but it was kind of weird that we actually did what we said we were going to do. Like, it was like, we're going to go on tour with face to face. We're going to play with uh blink one and we're going to do this, whatever. And we ended up doing it. And it was insane. Like, I was like, wow. I mean, we didn't have like huge, huge following, like some of the other bands on Vagrant, but it was like, man, I sent these demos out and we started in my room at my mom's house and we've pretty much came a pretty long way. So um, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. What did you guys think when we came on to the label? Cause that would have been in like June, May or June of that same year of 99. Did you feel frustrated or excited or anything? Oh yeah. <laughs> Did you not care? Totally. I definitely cared. We all cared. I mean, I didn't really hear of you guys. I think Max gave me an old record of you guys and I was like, Oh, that's a pretty cool. That's a pretty cool. And I was like, Oh, this is cool music. Like I, I, we were so like, we just started writing songs and, you know, like kind of like, I guess emo songs or whatever, but like, then you guys came along. I was like, Oh, I guess this band's big. Like I had no idea, you know? So it was kind of weird because like all these, when you guys came along and, and I was like, dude, who is this band? Wow. They, they got a huge following. And I thought it would be like really cool for us too, you know, but it was kind of like, uh, we were, we were like a band they paid attention to. And then you guys were like, boom, you know what I mean? So it's kind of, I look back on it going, man, like that's just how it rolls, dude. But when you're at the time, you're kind of like a little, I, I felt like a little, um, a little envious, I would guess. But, um, yeah, it was, you can be, you can be completely honest. You're not going to offend me about anything. If you guys, I mean, I can tell you from my experience when like, saves and the trio and all those guys starting getting more more and more attention i was a little like what the fuck man like, yeah you know like what happened to us and so i yeah, feel like totally. you guys would be in a similar situation just and, and it's not like i was mad at those bands you know at all i was happy for them to be successful but it was just kind of like you know you you just kind of get in your you know you're you're the star of your own movie as it were and it, it's just like 
So I just, I've, you know, I've always wondered this about your your band. If you guys were irritated that we came into your your house <laughs> and started, like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say we were, but now at the time, yeah. But now that I look back at it, I'm like, dude, we're just like kids, man. And you get totally. those emotions and like, you know, this. But I like it's hard for me to think at that time. Yeah, I was frustrated and we we toured a lot. But man, like it was pretty awesome because because you guys, you had some really cool songs. Saves a Day had some cool songs and you could be as mad as you want. But you're like, fuck, dude, that band's kind of good. Like, I, I see why. You know what I mean? So what was the reaction to Sadness Prevails? Did you guys did you f- f- like it sounds like you guys were probably already doing pretty well, like in your hometown in like the kind of like that sort of area? Like, did you get more like what was the reaction to that record? So I thought it was like for us, anything where we were before was good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we, we we stepped up. So it wasn't like huge, huge, huge. But it was like um we drew kids in certain places. You know what I mean? As for you guys, like you, you guys were just it felt like you guys would just draw kids from everywhere you went. You know what I mean? If it was 100, 300, 500, ours were in certain like demographics and stuff. So um the reaction of the record, like I thought it was very positive and it was actually pretty good for what Vagrant had at the time as far as distribution. But what helped, I figured what helped the label out was when you guys came too. And it's like, okay, boom, like more people were, you know, getting into more stores because you guys are more well-known. That's why I was guessing. But I I, I felt it was a pretty good uh, reaction from a record. I still love our record. So um, yeah. Yeah. I, I assume it's kind of interesting because we talked to, to Rich for a while for this mm-hmm. and yeah. just kind of learning about what a kind of a clusterfuck their distribution stuff was at the time things were going well but like they couldn't jesse do you remember there was something about a guy who made porn dvds or something like that yes it was a porn dvd duplicator would make their cds and package them yeah which sounds like this total like i don't know like it would just you saying that like the distribution was so much better and i'm just like i guess it was but i think it was by (laughs) by the skin of their teeth you know like it's just just crazy (laughs) so did you guys tour a lot on that record Cause I yeah, know, we t- I think the only time that we, I'm sure that we played together in California before that, but I, the, the one that I always think of is that CMJ that was us and you guys and the anniversary and Reggie. Yeah. At Bowery, the ballroom, right? At Bowery. I still have that poster up in my, I can see it right from here, but I, did you, were you guys on tour to that or did you, you didn't drive all the way to New York from, from uh, California, did you? I think we, I think we flew over there. Like, ah, uh, just such a blur. I remember that show, but I'm like, were we on tour? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea if we we're on tour or not for that show, but I remember the show. <laughs> so what tour, what did you guys, did you guys do a lot of touring for Sadness? Like, did you? Oh, yeah, we, we did a lot of touring. I mean, we toured before that too. We, 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 we were lucky enough to, I mean, we were fans of like bands like Good Riddance and stuff. And they took us, they, Vagrant was really cool because they uh, recorded two of our songs for the, the sampler they put out and they just gave us a whole bunch for the Good Riddance tour and said, Hey, take all these and sell them for free. So we were stoked to get us in the road. So we went across Canada before our record came out to promote it. And then uh, with Good Riddance and yeah, then we, the record came out and then we went on tour Oh man, we went on tour by ourselves with no one knowing who we were, only like in California. And that was gnarly. Like 
that was, I think it was seven and a half weeks, you know, the first time by yourself, you know, and it, you know, and on your itinerary there, it says like terms, like we're going to get paid. It says gas and, you know, will be fair and all that stuff, you know, <laughs> dude, it was like, yeah, I know, I know seven and a half weeks is long when people do know who you are. That's a long ass time, man. That's almost two months. Yeah. And then we, we did that tour. We went good riddance before. And then we, the record came out and we toured by ourselves for seven and a half weeks. Then we went with out with face to face. We were really stoked. And then I think we went out with MXPX um, after that for like eight weeks. And then we went out with face to face and Jimmy at world. Um, I think that was like really cool. I think that was the same. Yeah. And that's when face to face had their, uh, other CD come out. The, the one that didn't get a good response from people, but yeah. Oh, was, right, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. And then I think we did a couple more tours after that, I believe. And yeah, so we toured on it pretty much till the second, the, uh, Diagram for Healing. Uh, we went to the studio for that record. So, were you guys like writing songs for Diagram for Healing during that time, or do you? Yeah, were you, yeah. I think so. Yeah, we the songs uh, from Diagram for Healing. I think a couple of them are from the first tour that we went on, or the, the touring. They were about touring, and I guess that's how it goes. You know, you start writing songs about going on tour and being in the middle of nowhere. You know, <laughs> I know this. Where and with whom did you record Diagram for Healing, and what was it like going into that? that record that was actually we recorded with the same people you know what i mean we oh, okay. with uh trevor and chad at the same studio so yeah we worked with the same people and that's when pro Tools started coming out so it's kind of kind of a crazy thing so what was what was different then like what was like were you guys in a different headspace at that time or like you know you're you're more world wizened you know yeah. <laughs> after all that touring yeah. yeah i think we were pumped on this record you know what i mean so to do different songs. And I am, um, I know that record, the diagram for healing record was a lot more, um, I guess, pop centric, you know, there wasn't as many fast, fast songs, like fast, meaning like really punk beats. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, um, more like mid tempo and, um, yeah, it was more pop driven uh, record, but I really like that record too. But, um, and then we started, you know, that's when Pro Tools started coming in and like doing guitar overdubs and like editing, like drums and stuff. That was pretty, pretty weird going, well, that's crazy. You know, <laughs> this is a two part question to that. One was, were you cognizant of that, that could potentially get a weird reaction, especially after seeing what face to face had gone through. And then did you get a weird reaction when it came out? No, it was actually a good reaction. It was pop meaning like, um, not, not like the face to face stuff. It was still punk rock. It was still power chords and driving. It was more like, it was more kind of like blink 182 y some riffs in there, you know, more driving stuff like that. Um, yeah. So that's what I meant by it, you know? Oh, okay. I didn't, I wasn't entirely sure. A lot of our conversations have been with people trying, you know, different sounds after, having already put out their first record and having the, uh, the audience wasn't necessarily ready for experimentation during that time. Yeah. I'm learning yeah. just as a whole. So yeah. But like people were into that record into diagram for healing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That, that was a cool record because, um, that's when we, we actually got to do some, um, shows with blink One Eight Two. I guess Mark Hoppus liked the record. So he took us on, um, a couple shows and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it was, it was, a uh, yeah, people liked that record. So I was, I was definitely stoked on it. I mean, you listen to it back now and you're like, Oh, I shouldn't have done that or that, but that's just how it always goes. You yeah, know, like. totally. <laughs> so is it 2001, you guys were on the, you did some of the vagrant America tour that year right? Yes. Yes. I remember. How was that? Dude, that was awesome. That was kind of weird because like, I know we shared a bus with dashboard. It was us dashboard. I don't think you guys were on that leg. It was us dashboard and alkaline trio. 
So obviously they were like the two bands and they were like, I don't know that, you know, they were headlining and it was kind of funny because like, we were like the smaller band on there and it was kind of like, <laughs> it was real funny because like all these bands, you guys came over and everyone, you guys had big following of Alkaline Trio had a huge following saves day. And no one really, came. we had a couple fans out there and it was kind of like, Oh man, you know, but then I looked back on it and I was like, dude, like to see like bands, like how, like the, I don't know the vibe was on it. It was, it was kind of, it was kind of strange, dude. We were just kind of in our own, doing our own thing. You know what I mean? Like just keeping kind of keeping to ourselves a little bit, you know what I mean? But, um, even only on- when we, only when we get drunk, we'd start talking smack. You know what I mean? But all, all for, you know, all for love. I don't like, know. I was, what are you talking? I don't know what you're talking about. I think I remember sharing like we were in a bus with, with Chris Caraba, and I would be like smoking on the bus, like dude, like f you, man, just like totally, like I'm like get up and have a beer with me, dude, like seriously, like you know, just be like a fool, but it was fun. <laughs> I think everybody remembers that. Like we we didn't do that tour. We just came up and played the shows in Chicago. And I I say that like because we didn't really kind of in that same time period. Like which is why I, I wanted to ask you about being frustrated when we came on. Is that we were sort of like we don't want to be the vagrant machine. You know what I mean? Like we just want to be our like what you were just saying where you're like in, you're your own thing. You know what I mean? And you're not like so like we only just played the shows in Chicago. But I remember like meeting. I mean, we had met before, but just like that, that whole vibe of the four days that we were there was just sort of like, yeah, it's just a bunch of friends hanging out. There happened to be 1500 people at the show, but you know, like we don't care. (laughs) We're just sort of like hanging out and and drinking and shooting the shit and stuff. And so, and I always felt like you guys were a part of that. Do you feel like that's the case? Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah, sometimes not, but it was kind of like, we were like, for me, like I try to stay out of people's business sometimes. And I'm like, ah, maybe they don't want to talk to us or maybe I don't want to bug them, you know, like, but that's when the beer drinking comes in. You're like, fuck it. What's up? (laughs) You know, but yeah, we felt a little like, um, honestly, like out of place uh, on some of the tours, you know what I mean? Like it's, that's just, I don't know. That's just how it was, but yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Like, why did you feel like, what was it? Why did you feel out of place? Like we didn't feel like emo cool. You know what I mean? Like I, like we were just, we're just dudes. We're surfers. Like we, we come from a surf town in Oxnard, California. Like we, we like backyard punk shows and crusty punks and just different, you know, and I felt like the emo, like you guys were like really cool and saves the day was like really cool. You guys were like all tight pants and had these cool jeans and all this stuff, diesel. <laughs> and we we're like just Levi's and like skater and just like, you know, and so it was kind of like, it was kind of like, we didn't really fit the vagrant mold that they were like, I felt like they were putting together. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, it was weird, dude. It was like, it was kind of like the start of like, like the bands were like super cool. You know what I mean? Like, but it's so to weird us, to me. yeah, but to us, it was like, I don't know, dude, you know, we're just, we're just dudes from the Nard, like Oxnard, you know? And Do you really call Oxnard the Nard? Yeah, dude. Come on, Nardcore. Yeah, That's dude. rad. I like that a lot. So Nardcore, Nardcore is big, dude. Look, it's kind of funny, dude. Yeah. What is Nardcore? Just bands from Oxnard? And being an East Coast kid, I totally thought that like Nardcore was a genre. Then when I found out differently, I was like, oh, that's really weird. 
Is Nardcore a sound or is it just bands from Oxnard? It bands from Oxnard. It was this whole like kind of punk movement in, in like the early 80s. And it's still, yeah, it's it's kind of strong right now, actually. There's like hardcore bands. Yeah, they call it Nardcore. What are the OGs of, sorry, this is not what we're supposed to be talking about, but like what are the, what are the OGs oh, of oh, Nardcore? Dude. Man, Ill Repute. Or what are the biggest bands of Nardcore? Probably Ill Repute and Stalag 13. Okay, I know. I uh, I thought Stalag 13 was a band from Philly. No, Stalag 13 was a venue in Philly. That's what it was. We played there one time. So we were kind of a, we were kind of a part of that Nardcore scene, the second wave, or I think it was the third wave of, of that. It was like early eight, like a lot of punk, harder punk bands. And then we came around and it was kind of like, but we were from Oxnard, so we got kind of thrown in there, you know? So yeah, it's called Nardcore, dude. You got to look it up. It's Sick, I'm dude. learning. It's, man, I'm learning something new every day. I had no idea. That's great. I love it. Yeah, it's kind of funny because Rich would be like, Nardcore. And I'm like, dude, it's a real thing, man. It's it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to me, too, like, because this has come up a couple of times now about like, you, you said emo cool. And I was just like, we were dorks. You know what I mean? Like, we, we, we didn't interpret ourselves as like, we, you know, you're in your own head. You're... You have to have a certain level of arrogance to even be in a band in the first place. We always like we never got we didn't get good reviews. We got kind of shit on by like hardcore kids and punk kids and stuff and and this sort of thing. And so like when you say that like we were the cool kids, I'm just kind of like, what on the hell are you talking about? But uh, I guess that's how it was interpreted. I don't know. It's interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to me too because yeah, we were not the cool kids. Like maybe like in a certain realm but you guys were the cool kids on that tour that's you know so I mean? <laughs> weird because even even like when we talked we talked to mark hoppus the other day and he was saying that that he was that we were the cool kids and i'm like you're in the biggest punk band of all time like what do you what do you give a shit what okay. i think yeah you know there's you guys are the cool kids in the back of the room you know that we're, we're cool dude i hope we didn't treat you poorly if we were being arrogant i'm just not nah, dude it's not dude. i don't re- i don't remember too much about about it's so long ago dude but yeah man i mean you guys are you guys are the cool the cool bunch saves the day too you know oh well well I, okay I well that's one time i got to be cool and i didn't even know it <laughs> <laughs> i was completely unaware i was That's just been better, ins- man. insecure my whole life and apparently at one point i was <laughs> uh, cool i still am so it's okay <laughs> so okay so to did you besides the vagrant tour what you said that's when you went out with blink and you when did you tour with face to face was it on sadness or was it on that record it was on sadness okay so i'm trying to kind of put a timeline together so like the vagrant tour is like the summer of 2001 diagram came out what in the spring 2001. of that year yeah i what? think it was spring of two, uh, 2001 i believe and so it's kind of at that point that like i remember saves was getting on like late night and dashboard was starting to like really blow up and and did you have any thoughts on that? Or did you ever, I guess more to the point, like we've already touched on that, but more to the point, did you ever feel like you were getting less attention from the label at that point? Or did you ever feel that way? Um, Yeah, Um, I felt like, well, I think during Diagram, it was, we got, we got a lot of attention, but I felt like other bands got more attention. Rightfully so, man, because honestly, like you guys, you guys were really good live. Like you guys sounded good. We had, we, we would always like, there were certain shows where we didn't sound good like sonically like I was hitting the drums too hard or the guitars were too loud or Jeremy wasn't singing loud enough like it wasn't really honestly like I could say we weren't really consistent on our live sound you know and you guys seem like you were and it was and saves a day too so I think that had a lot to do with it um looking back um so after after 
Look, what was the question again about, say that again? Well, I was just wondering if you, if you were starting to, if you felt at all during that time, just because things really started to steamroll, if you were not getting the attention that you wanted. Yeah, totally. But I had other plans in my head for the band. I wanted to just get off Vagrant. You know what I mean? Honestly. Oh, really? Like, uh, yeah, man. Like I was like, I, I was telling the other guys in the band, I was like, dude, like, like I kind of want to just try to, uh, step up, step up to a major and see what happens. You know what I mean? So, because I don't know if we're going to make it in this scene, dude, you know what I mean? I know we could write a couple of pop songs or we, you know, and they were, they were for it, dude. Uh, but the only thing is, is I wanted to go with a different producer and do a couple of different things. So they ended up like kicking me out of the band, you know what I mean? And they, oh, no. but it was, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was, we went into the studio with like John Feldman and he did a couple demos for us. And then we got like courted by like a major label and they were going to sign us, but they ended up like the guy in total major label story. Like the guy gets fired. You know what I mean? Oh, After right. that, yeah, I, I lined up a lot of things for the band, um, as far as producers and, um, like we were going to, like Mark Trombino was going to do our record. Um, I had him to do it. He, he was, and, and John Feldman, but the guys didn't want them to do the record. And I was just like, no way, dude. So they wanted to produce their own next record and I didn't want to do that. So just two creative differences. They gave me the boot out of the band and I didn't play on that third record, but I wrote, I wrote songs on that record. I have riffs on there that are, are that I helped with. So, and drum beats and drum parts and all that stuff. So I, I arranged songs too. So did you work on that EP that came out between? Um, I, I didn't work on that, but I helped write those songs on there or, you know, structure them and stuff. So you, was it just like you guys couldn't come to like a compromise of like what direct, like who to work with and like where to go? Is it just, I'm sorry if this is a, if this is a wound, you don't want to reopen, but. Nah, dude, it's cool, dude. Like seriously, it's actually, it's actually good. It was like creative differences. I wanted to go more pop and I wanted to like try something different and see if we could do good with a different label or, or like a major. And they wanted to, I feel like they wanted to produce their own record and do different sounds and write a darker record. You know, that's what they wanted to do, write a darker record. They could correct me if I'm wrong. It's cool. Roger, text me, whatever. I think they wanted to go darker. I wanted to go more pop. Um, I wanted a better producer, but not a better producer. I'm saying a, another producer and, and they didn't want that. So they wanted to produce their own record. So they just let me go out of the band, which is kind of, it's kind of crazy because like, it's funny. Like I started a band in my, in my room with me and Jeremy, you know what I mean? So it's kind of weird. Like it was kind of a wound at the time, but it was kind of a, it was kind of a blessing for me because a lot of weight was off my back. It's okay. You know? So, and it was, it's funny because on the third record, there's actually a song that's written about me. You know what I mean? Like I'm from Jeremy, but Jeremy's like still my best friend. He lives like a mile away from me. You know what I mean? So. Oh, that's awesome. That you guys are still friends. Yeah, man. Band shits. I mean, dude, when you have kids, man, it changes you, man. You get older, <laughs> it changes you. It's like, dude, that was, we were lame. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, dude. I got other important things to worry about in my life. My daughter just jumped off the couch yesterday and ate it. I'm like, Aah! I guess I didn't know that you, that that's when that happened. I didn't know. I thought you you played on that. It's interesting because I, I guess I assume that you played on that third record, but you it makes sense to me now that you're saying that you helped write some of it before you yeah before you parted ways. That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. We still have many more episodes on the way, so be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Muse Formation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. 
Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.